Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Nah, enough of that. What's up, Two Tongues family? Chris coming at you with another solo episode of the podcast. Today we're getting into Eric Neumann again. Oh, man, I've got such a big stack of books over here, you guys. I don't know how I'm ever going to get through it all. <laughs> but I've uh, been making progress on the young stuff, and uh, Neumann goes right along that um, that line. So we did uh, Neumann and Von Franz and Edinger and Jung and back and forth and back and forth. And um, I'm revisiting Neumann today. Um, the Origin and uh, History of Consciousness is the book. Uh, it's fantastic. It's, a, the, it's the book that Jung said he wished he had written. Um, so that's a, that's a one hell of a compliment. This one's kind of interesting because it's on the it's on the heels of um, I mean along the same lines of what we've been talking about. But it's on the heels of a kind of an interesting and difficult um, kind of conceptual philosophical part of this which is the mythological idea of the Ouroboros and the connections that these depth psychologists like Jung and Neumann make to uh, in between, um, well, the development of consciousness and the origin of consciousness, as the book suggests, um, and these sort of mythological and religious stories about the origins of the cosmos. So there's this over and over and over again, these interesting connections between the birth of consciousness and the birth of creation, the cosmos. I find it very fascinating. I find it very compelling. And I think I've told you before, but the reason seems to be that we experience the world from, the, from a perspective. That's what Jung calls the ego the perspective of Chris, what it's like to be me. And it's the only way that I know the world. And it's the only way that I know myself through my personal individual experiences. Um, wrapped into this conversation today is going to be a whole bunch of talk about the Oedipus myth. And uh, listen, it's a weird one, you guys. You, you've, you've heard of Oedipus before. You've probably heard, of, heard about it from the perspective of Freud. It's one of the things that's of questionable validity, you might say, but but there's but there's some truth to it, and um, I think Jung saw a slightly bigger picture than Freud, and that's what I'm going to try to paint for you today. I'm going to try to make the myth of Oedipus in the same way that Freud talks about the myth, as applicable to our psychology and all that. I'm going to try to make it less creepy and weird for you. Uh, we all know, and if you don't know. The story of Oedipus, the ancient Greek story of Oedipus, is about a man, a, the hero of the story, who, through the course of the story, ends up, 
he ends up usurping his father and sleeping with his mother. And the twist in it is it's not exactly voluntary in the sense that he doesn't know it's his mother, um, but it's weird and taboo and, you know, weird, right? It's weird. Nobody wants to talk about the Oedipus complex. Nobody wants to believe that it's legitimate. What I'm going to tell you here is that Neumann and Jung have an interpretation of the story that is mythological, and that means that it's not literal. It means that it's symbolic. It means that it's psychological. So we have a version of the story that's understood psychologically that makes way more sense. And the whole motif about incest and all that, it's, it's, you're going to be able to see why it's applicable, why it would be framed that way. But it's not nearly the sort of ill-fated and sort of disgusting story that you might think it is. So... So what I want to do is demystify the Oedipal complex by examining the symbolic meaning behind the story. The deeper meaning of the story is far stranger than that taboo tale of incest that appears on the surface. By examining the primordial myth of the Ouroboros, we will be able to see parallels to the Oedipus story, which place it in an entirely different light. When taking... When taking Oedipus as a symbol of ego consciousness, his fateful story becomes the great hero story. And as this hero story is the fate of each and every one of us, we all stand to learn something profound from it. What does Oedipus's uh, mother and father represent in the story? What does the hero himself represent? If it's symbolic... If we're not to read it, in, you know, literally, what does it mean? All right, let's find out. I'm going to call this first section, Born into the Dragon's Lair. I like that, Born into the Dragon's Lair. Okay, so the story of, we're going to talk a lot about Oedipus today, but we're going to set this up. And where this begins is in a place that we, we talked about before with this myth of um, the Ouroboros. And, um, you know, we did a lot of talking about it from the Jordan Peterson lectures. We did a lot of talking about it so far in the young lectures. Um, but the idea is it's hard to understand. So I'm going to do my best to, to navigate the waters for you. The Ouroboros is a symbol. It's something that we see in our very earliest myths. It's something that we see lots of places. The word Ouroboros is not the word that you'll see um, historically, and you're not going to see it necessarily in these myths that we're talking about, but it's kind of like a motif. So we're going to call that motif the Ouroboros, which means something like the generative union of opposites. And whatever that is, so it's strange to even talk about because what the union of opposites is, are, however you want to say that, is not at all easy to understand. There's one way in which you can say when you join opposites, you're left with nothing. You take hate, you plug in some love, and you're left with nothing. They, they cancel each other out. And there's logical reasons to think along those lines. The truth, though, at least symbolically, spiritually, psych- psychologically, is very different. The truth is that when opposites meet, they don't cancel each other out like a negative five and a positive five. What, what's left over is something undefined and eternally potent. It's something that has no form, and so, and so it's hard to have any knowledge about it. And yet, it's, 
And yet it, re- it rests at the basis of everything that is. It's very mysterious, this thing. It's something you might call potentiality. And you can think about that maybe like a stem cell. That's a good analogy I like to use. It's a cell that can become anything. That which can become anything is something we might call potential. And if you symbolically take the union of opposites, it's not nothing you're left with. It's something we might call potentiality. Becoming is another word you might use. Okay, so this is the this is the where the story begins. You've got these this generative union of opposites, something that's oftentimes portrayed as uh, a dragon eating its tail, um, something that you see similarly in the yin and the yang symbol from Taoism in China, but you see it in lots of lots of, of instances. One way that the Western world um, will be familiar with this idea is the image of the union of masculine and feminine which we see in our religious imagery going back to the beginning of Western civilization and really even back into ancient Egypt. It's the image of Madonna and child. So if you don't know that, if you don't know that Renaissance motif, Madonna and child, it's, it's Mary and Jesus. It's Isis and Horus. It's a great goddess that represents, you know, the womb of, of the world, where the thing from which everything comes. It's embodied in the image of a goddess, of a woman, and she's holding a male child. So you have an adult woman, the great goddess, and she's holding a male child. Whether that child is Jesus or Horus or whatever, it makes no difference. Um, we are perfectly familiar with this image. We don't often question why it's so significant and why you see it elsewhere apart from Christianity. You see it lots of places. Because what it represents, right, the mother embracing the, the mother embracing the male child is exactly what it looks like. It's the union of opposites. It's the feminine embracing the masculine. And you can imagine that as Madonna and child, but you can imagine that as the yin and the yang. It's the same symbol. So this is where we're starting. Now the Ouroboros, the, the, the opposites in the Ouroboros are generally talked about as masculine and feminine, but you might you might also talk about them as conscious and unconscious. Um, there's all sorts of ways that you might kind of talk about that dichotomy, those opposites. Um, but we can talk about masculine and feminine because we're going to do a lot of that today. And um, if you bring together masculine and feminine, you kind of understand why that is a creative act. Why it doesn't leave you with nothing, but rather something new. Because if you bring a, a male and a female together in union, we think about sex, we understand that's a generative act. So this is the kind of symbol we're looking at. This, these disembodied forces of the masculine and the feminine, their powers that shape the cosmos, whatever that means. And when they're together in the beginning, before the creation, they're basically in a, in a sexual union, and they're giving birth within themselves. So the, the Hindus and the Indians have a myth about an egg, cosmic egg. And this is what comes to my mind when I think about this, the, the Ouroboros together in this original state when they, before they were separated into the great mother goddess and the great father god, which is what happens. Before that, they're an egg. There's something self-contained. And all of the birth that, that they're giving, right, all of the, 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 the male and the female together are, are creating new things, and all of that new newness is being born within it right? It's inside the egg. It hasn't escaped. 
all of this newness and creation is, is happening. It's stirring inside the Ouroboros. And so what we're talking about here is something like, like a state of potentiality, like a state of supremely pregnant um, moment. You know, you, you might think of the, the millisecond before the Big Bang. This is kind of what the Ouroboros represents. And then at some point, at some point something happens. The Ouroboros is separated from itself. The masculine and the feminine are separated from one another. And it does a couple of things. It cracks the egg, and it, and it unleashes all of this creation into reality. You know, in, into space and time, you might say. It also separates, the, you know, what was once united, the, the, the masculine and the feminine, and there's something that's caused the separation. And if you, if you look at the mythological stories, they tell you what causes the separation. One of the things that's born between the masculine and the feminine in the Ouroboros is responsible for separating them. Like all of these things that were being created inside the egg, the primordial egg, didn't separate it, didn't crack the egg, but something did. What is that something? What's powerful enough to separate the heavens and the earth, to separate the Ouroboros? It was, it's, it's consciousness. The thing that you are, the thing that I am. So, it's, it's talked about mythologically as the divine son. And you can kind of see the Jesus motif there, even just using the word divine son. You kind of know what, I, what I'm getting at. There's something in the middle between chaos and order, between the feminine and the masculine, that synthesizes the two, that reconciles the two. And this is the thing that exists. You know, this is the thing that finally goes beyond this primordial state of potential and makes it something else, something new, something actual, something material, something subject to the laws of, of physics. And this is consciousness that does this in the myth. And you might wonder why I'm so confident about that. And I'm just talking here about mythological stories, and they just happen to be uh, relevant and cohesive among lots of different ancient people. Um, and that's interesting, because it's sort of hard to explain that. But the divine son that's born from these first parents, the, the great god and the great goddess of the Ouroboros, he's, he's, well, in the Egyptian story, he's Horus. What is Horus? Horus is the all-seeing eye. It's the falcon that flies above you that sees everything. Birds can see very well, you know. So he's a symbol, like the symbol in the pyramid at the top of the United States dollar bill, this all-seeing eye, the eye of God that watches and judges, the, the eye of, of, of your conscience, let's say. And if you look at the, um, the original story here, the, the original myth where this comes from way back in, in Samaria, it wasn't obviously Horus then, but it was Marduk. Marduk was very much the god of consciousness. He had eyes all over his head, so he could see everything, just like just like Horus, right? The all-seeing eye. What this symbol represents, sight and the eye, is exactly the same thing behind your vision right now. 
It's the consciousness that sees whatever it is your eyes are seeing, whatever you know, the knowledge that gets the information that gets absorbed, um, and and is an experience. Okay. So that's why I know that in the mythological story, that the thing that finally separates the opposites and, cre- and is the catalyst for creation is the creation of consciousness itself. And the Ouroboros is going to be seen as the thing that gives birth to consciousness. Psychologically, we, we call that the unconscious. So, And we know that consciousness comes from something else. We know that it arises from some other form of cognition, and that's something you might call unconscious. Like all the things that go on in creatures that aren't intelligent like us and don't have, you know, self-reflective self-consciousness like we do, all of those things, right? Like, like how we're breathing right now. Do you know how you're doing it? Why? Because it's unconscious. There's still something going on. There's processes. There's signals biologically. There's all kinds of things going on that allow me to breathe. There's things that allow me to retrieve memories that I can't think of right now. They're not on top of my mind, but I can reach back and grab it from the vault somehow, whatever that means. There are unconscious things going on before creatures are developed to be sufficiently complex that they can have what you would call a self-conscious or conscious experience like you, like you and I have. Even like lesser animals have, right? There was a time when we were single-celled organisms. And we didn't have any sense organs, right? But we still had something. Something that drives us all along, that doesn't require consciousness, but from which sophisticated consciousness can emerge. That's what we call un- the unconscious. So obviously, the unconscious is the bedrock, is the matrix that makes consciousness possible. So you can think of the unconscious as something like, well, in, mytholo- in mythology we call it the great goddess. It's something like the womb, symbolically. The place from which all new things can be born, including, including consciousness. So mythologically you've got this unconscious dragon, the dragon of the Ouroboros. It's made of these two primordial forces, the masculine and the feminine, the conscious and the unconscious. And at some point they, they, they work this miracle between them where they create a new consciousness that can stand on its own. It's something that's sort of unconscious. It's also sort of conscious. It's some synthesis between the two, and it stands all on its own as its self-contained, uh, independent thing. That's the divine sun. So this is a way for us to talk about mythology, but it's also a way for us to talk about the origin of our own consciousness. And because, like I said in the beginning, because there's such a weird connection between my experience of being and my understanding of the world and myself, it's hard for me to make a distinction between the creation of my consciousness and the creation of the, of the universe, right? Because for me, they're not different things. My experience of the universe began when I, was, when I became conscious, and it will end when my consciousness ends. And so there isn't a difference, you see, between the story of my consciousness being born and the cosmos being born. There is no difference. So symbolically and psychologically, this is what we see. And the, myth, the, the myths which, which walk that fine line, they do exactly that. They overlap these stories about the birth of consciousness and the birth of of the cosmos, of material reality.
Okay, let me get into this here. Born into the Dragon's Lair. I got a little bit off, <laughs> off track there, you guys. All right, it starts like this. Once, the Ouroboros has divided into a pair of opposites, and the sun has placed himself between them. The first stage of his emancipation is successful. The ego, standing in the center between the world parents, has challenged both sides of the Ouroboros. He is now faced with the dragon fight, a struggle with these contrary forces. Only the outcome of this struggle will reveal whether the emancipation is really successful. So what he's teeing up here, and the reason I, I, I call this section Born into the Dragon's Lair, is because consciousness is born from the Ouroboros. The unconscious dragon of chaos, that's what, that's what the Ouroboros is. And there are reasons why we talk about it as if it's a dragon, because it's the place where all things go to die. Because it's the place that has power, um, you know, of creation or, or uh, destruction. Um, it's a monster. The thing that creates the cosmos is something like a monster. I'm not sure how much to explain there. Let me just push on here. So when consciousness is, is created within the Ouroboros and separates the two halves, and becomes its own thing. It has become its own thing and finds itself in the dragon's lair, right? Consciousness is created, and where it's created is within the Ouroboros. It opens up its little baby eyes and looks up and sees a fucking dragon. It's a precarious place to be born, don't you think? And the unconscious is, a, again, often it's... it's related to the development of our, our own consciousness. And you can imagine, and I've, I've tried to say this many times before, but you can imagine a time when you were mostly unconscious. You know, when you had a fetal existence inside your mother. This is the state of consciousness in the Ouroboros. It's like in the womb of its mother. So you can imagine, maybe you can imagine, when that was the case for you. When you were existing largely unconsciously, floating around in a, in a sack of fluid in your mother's womb, right? You're, you're perfectly warm and dark and content. You have no sense of self. You have no desires or needs because all your needs are being met. The warmth and the, and the, the nutrition you're getting from your mother is all happening automatically. It's entirely unconscious. There's nothing that you need consciousness for. You're just in a state of bliss right? But it's almost like a state of not existing at all. It's right on the edge of existing at all. Because if you're living only unconsciously, are you living? Is there a difference between you and your mother then? It's very difficult to say. And we have this impulse to grow out of that. We have this impulse to become our own self, just like the divine son in the mythological story. But to do that, we have to pull ourselves voluntarily we have to rip ourselves out of that state of bliss and comfort that state of something like a deep deep sleep that we're in that beautiful dream that we're in when we're when we're a, you know fetal consciousness let's say for us to be able to stand on our own we have to resist the desire to fade into the deepest of sleeps within this unconscious womb right where we could just sit nestled it forever and just you know, cease to exist. We have to say no to that. It's like everybody who puts a heroin needle into their arm 
is making the other decision, if that makes sense to you. They're going to stick that heroin in their arm and just stop existing for a while. They're just going to lay back in, in the warmth and the peace and the nothingness, right? For consciousness to stand on its own, it has to say no to that. And that is not easy. And that is why the Ouroboros is a dragon. It just will suck you back in, you know, and you almost want it to. All right, so I'll continue here. He says, Neumann says, the ego standing in the center between the world parents has challenged both sides of the Ouroboros. So it's not exactly consciousness. It's not exactly unconsciousness. It's something new. It's sort of both, and it stands in the middle. So that's what he means by challenging both sides of the Ouroboros. And with a challenge comes a fight, right? So now he's faced, as Neumann says, with the dragon fight. This is the hero story. This is the hero story we know well. Neumann says, um, only the outcome of this struggle will reveal whether the emancipation is really successful. What he means here is, you might struggle to pull yourself free from that blissful unconscious state. And you might fail. And if you do, you sink back into nothingness. You, you forfeit your life and your existence. You die. If you succeed, if you pull yourself away from that unconscious bliss and you stand on your own two feet as your own independent thing, then you've won. Now that is the hero's story. That is what you must do. And it all sounds very symbolic right now, and that's entirely, entirely correct. But we're going to flesh this out. All right, Neumann says, Turning to this fight, a basic type in all mythologies... We must first distinguish the various stages of battle and its components. The dragon fight has three main components. The hero, the dragon, and the treasure. By vanquishing the dragon, the hero gains the treasure, variously known as the treasure hard to attain, the pearl of great price, the water of life, or the herb of immortality. All right, guys, so this is the dragon fight. This is the hero story. This is what he says is a basic theme in every mythology known to man. Something like this. A fight with a monster. A hero is challenged. He must rise to the occasion. He must. And as a consequence, he has an opportunity to gain something of the greatest value. And the water of life or the herb of immortality, that's something we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It goes way back to ancient Babylon. But you know that story. It could be the Holy Grail, you know? It could be, um, oh, I don't know, what, what is it in Harry Potter? The Sword of Gryffindor? What, whatever it is, it's something that has to be gained, something vitally important. So, so let's think about this symbolically. These are myths we're talking about. So symbolically, the treasure is that which sustains life because that's the greatest of all treasures, right? That's why you see it as the water of life or the herb of immortality. It's something to do with immortality, something that has the power to sustain your life. And what I'm going to posit to you is that what that treasure is, what that means, is something like the power of adaptation, what Jung would call transformation, we have psychological transformations. You know that as well as I do. You're not the same person you were when you were 10 
or 15 or 25 for that matter, and on and on. We have transformations, physical, psychological transformations where we become different significantly enough from what we used to be that we no longer identify with the old version of ourselves. And we see, we see that sort of thing happening at, as Jordan Peterson would say, at multiple levels of analysis. It's happening all around you, not just within you, but all around you. And when you see something like transformation everywhere, it should be more compelling to you than if you only see it one place. It's like the evidence stacks up. So you look at evolution, you can see how biological life adapts to the environment. You look at this, the cycles of, of rain and the clouds and, and all that, you can see how they interact with the currents and the ocean and the wind and the humidity and all that. And things are constantly interacting with each other. Experience transforms everything. And it's causing new galaxies to be born, new stars to be born. It's causing the cells in your body to die. It's causing the telomeres to shrink. It's causing all sorts of things. Everywhere you look, transformation. Why? You know, even to the basic physics, we talk about time and we talk about entropy. Both of those things, critical to understanding physical law. They're just different ways of saying transformation. Everything is adapting and transforming. And here's the thing, and Jordan Peterson has said this many times better than I will. Transformation is necessary. Like you know that when you think about maturing like from a kid to an adolescent to an adult. You know that if you would have stayed psychologically as developed as a child, when you got to adulthood, you would, you would never be able to, to thrive. You fail to adapt, and that's a problem right? It, it's not, you can't sustain life unless you transform. And that, I, I posit, is what the hero story is getting at when it talks about this treasure to be gained. If you go and you fight the dragon, there's some way you have to transform or adapt in order to overcome that challenge. Right, the same way you may have to do several, several, uh, you know, exercises a day for many weeks before you can do the number of pull-ups you're hoping to accomplish. Right, there's something, there's some engagement with the world that needs to be, that needs to happen. There's some experience that needs to happen in order for transformation to take place. And this, I think, is connected to the hero story more than it, than you might think. All right, Neumann says. What does the symbol of the dragon mean? The dragon bears all the marks of the Ouroboros. It is masculine and feminine at once. The dragon fight forms a central chapter in the evolution of mankind and in the personal development of the child. It is connected with the Oedipus complex, which we call the problem of the first parents. All right, so I want to bring your attention to that second sentence where he says, the dragon fight forms a central chapter in the evolution of mankind and in the development of the child. So you see what he's saying here is that the story of the fight with the dragon is symbolically accurately describing the evolution of mankind as a species, but also the evolution of your own individual consciousness as a, from a child to adulthood. You can see the phases of development in your psyche, in yourself, but also in the species as a whole. That's interesting, right? Multiple levels of analysis. Then he says it's connected with the Oedipus story, the Oedipus complex. 
And I already mentioned, for those people who don't know the Oedipus story, son falls in love with his mother and usurps his own father. This is the basic story. And you can see when he relates this to the first parents, he's talking again about the Ouroboros. You can see that if you were, in the story of Oedipus, falling in love with your mother and usurping your father, you can see a parallel to the divine son being born and splitting up his parents that were once together, the conscious side and the unconscious side of the Ouroboros. They get separated from one another, and the force of that separation is the divine son. It's this new conscious thing that's been born from their union. So you might think of that as a noose, as a son usurping the role of his father, right? He stands right in the middle between the mother and the father. All right, Neumann says, the hero's fight plays an eternal part in overcoming the inertia of the libido, which is symbolized by the encircling mother dragon, i.e. the unconscious. All right, so libido is another sort of Freudian word here. So I don't know if you know what that means. A lot of times we think about libido, we think about sex drive. Um, from a psychological perspective, it's related. It's something like the force of life and procreation. There's some force within you psychologically or biologically or both that's driving you to spread your genes, to procreate and all that sort of thing. Um, it's a creative force as, as much as a sexual force, you know? So think about it like that. So overcoming the inertia of the libido, which, which is symbolized by the encircling mother dragon. And so that this encircling mother dragon is the idea of this devouring mother. It's the negative side of this great mother goddess that we're going to see in more detail in a moment. So there's something interesting here when he uses the word libido. And he means sort of the, first, the force of life. And he relates that to the mother dragon, which which is the unconscious side of the Ouroboros. There's a connection between the force of life and the unconscious. And that stood out to me because I've been reading Carl Jung's Red Book. Right, That's the book he wrote before he died. And it was super weird and mystical. And in that book, he on multiple occasions, he talks about the unconscious as the source of life. And I find that very fascinating. I haven't thought that through all the way but it's something that keeps popping in my mind as though I need to be exploring it more. So I should, uh, I will, I'll talk about it more. Uh, but Jung definitely thinks that the unconscious is synonymous with the life force, the thing that makes you conscious or alive. Again, that comes from the unconscious, which we saw in the story of the Ouroboros. And, and this is what Jung has said over and over again in the Red Book. I just think it's interesting because we do see parallels uh, here with Neumann. And Neumann goes on, he says, Young demonstrates that the hero's incest is a regenerative incest. Victory over the mother, frequently taking the form of actual entry into her. The incest produces a transformation of personality, which alone makes the hero a hero. So let me repeat that again. Incest produces a transformation which makes the hero a hero. So this is the kind of weird heebie-jeebie stuff that we, we're going to have to tackle here. We're talking about incest, and not just incest, but incest with your mother. It's like the weirdest kind. Um, so this is uncomfortable, but we're going we're gonna to be uncomfortable together because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear this up for you. Okay, when he says 
that Jung demonstrates the hero's incest is a regenerative incest. That, to me, harkens back to the Ouroboros. When the great mother and, and great father were together in the Ouroboros, I called that a generative union. They're together and they're creating as a consequence of being together. Just like a sex act, you can imagine. Jung calls this incest, which, by the way, he talks about going back to your origin. He says, entry into your mother, right? We can think about that sexually, but we can also think about that as going back to your place of origin, right? Your place of origin is your mother. It doesn't have to be a sexual image at all. You're going back to the place where you came from to find whatever you need to find, whatever that mystery is, wherever that treasure is. And the place where you're going to find that back into your mother is the unconscious. You're going back to the unconscious. In mythological terms, this is going into the underworld. Something like that. And it's that incest. It's going back to the unconscious that produces the transformation that makes the hero a hero. Now, doesn't that sound a lot better than, than incest makes a hero a hero? So this is where the Oedipus complex, you can understand why you can talk about it like this. Why even using the word incest makes sense. Because you're going back to your place of origin, which is the great mother, the womb, the unconscious. It's not your mother. It's not Oedipus's mother. It's a symbolic place of origin. And you must go back there to that dark place with that deep, blissful, heroin-like you know, um, temptation of non-being. You have to go and look death in the face to find whatever the treasure is. That requires bravery. That requires a hero, does it not? And Neumann says, The conquest or killing of the mother forms one stratum in the myth of the dragon fight. The successive masculinization of the ego finds expression in its combativeness and readiness to expose itself to the danger which the dragon symbolizes. So I'm going to explain this to you because if you haven't listened to the whole series, when he says the successive masculinization of the ego finds expression in the combativeness and readiness to expose itself to danger, what does he mean by masculinization? So we talked about the Ouroboros being masculine and feminine. Those forces, the feminine being the unconscious and the masculine being the conscious, is what he means by this. He says the successive masculinization, he means the slowly, increasingly becoming more and more conscious ego, right? So the divine son, the consciousness that we're talking about that, that forms in between the Ouroboros, that's the, that's, that's the ego. That's ego consciousness. That's the thing that we attach to, that we identify with, that we think about as ourselves, even though there's a lot more to ourselves than just ego, so as the ego becomes more consciousness, excuse me, more conscious, it, it's more ready to face the danger of the dragon. So why would that be? Why would becoming conscious make it combative and ready to expose itself to danger? What is that? As far as I can tell, it's something like this. One would have to feel yourself to be a self, before you would fear losing yourself or before you would feel like you have to defend yourself, right? Consciousness has to become aware. It has to become a self all on its own. It has to want to be a self all on its own. 
And that requires consciousness, right? So the more conscious the ego becomes, the more it realizes that it's its own thing, the more threatened it feels by this force of the unconscious, by the looming dragon that gave it birth. You know, it used to be that heroin place in the womb where everything was great and nobody was asking anything of me and there was no pain. And then as soon as I become separate from that thing, it's no longer that blissful thing. It's a dragon looking at me. Why? Because it threatens my consciousness with what it is, unconscious. It threatens to remove my selfhood, my existence. And as soon as I have an existence, as soon as I feel myself a conscious individual, suddenly I have something worth protecting. Neumann says, the ego's identification with consciousness produces the psychic cleavage, which drives it into opposing the dragon of the unconscious. This struggle is variously represented as the entry into the cave, the descent to the underworld, or as being swallowed, shown most clearly in the hero myth, which take the form of the sun myths. Here, the swallowing of the hero by the dragon, the night, the sea, or the underworld, corresponds to the sun's nocturnal journey, from which it emerges victoriously after having conquered the darkness. All right, so we're going to see this story and mythology in lots of ways. If you're trying to understand this going back into the unconscious, this incest motif, you might see it in stories as the hero going into the cave, going into the underworld, or being swallowed, like Jonah swallowed by, by the whale in the Bible, that sort of thing. These are all symbolic representations of going back to the place of birth. A cave, by the way, is very commonly, especially in prehistoric times, related to the womb. Cave is the womb of the earth. So if you go into the cave, into the deep, deep, dark place, that's the unconscious. Just like the place behind your closed eyes is this infinite, eternal place of imagination. You know? Very, very mysterious. All right, then he starts talking about the sun myth in particular. Because this one is very widespread. And here's the, here's, the, here's the imagery. I mean, you know the story. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. It's gone for half the day in the night world. While night reigns and you're not sure if the sun, whatever it's doing down there, right? It's doing mythological battle with the forces of darkness and the unconscious. Will it survive? Will it be victorious again? And we won't know until sunrise when it emerges from the underworld. And the sun, the sun hero is, is victorious, right? And you can kind of see the same swallowing image, by the way. If you've ever watched the sun go down past the horizon, especially on the lake or on the ocean, it looks as though it's being swallowed by the ocean. The ocean, by the way, is another symbol for the unconscious, right? It's this vast, deep, dark chasm, you know, that's seemingly endless. It's filled with dragons. Um, you know, anything in the world, anything imaginable could, could manifest itself from that deep place. That's also a symbol for the unconscious. So you can see the story just by observing the sunrise and the sunset. You see an image of the hero story. All right, Jung, uh, Neumann says, Incest with the mother is in itself desirable. A weird thing to say, man, especially on the air. 
But when he says incest, he's talking about rejoining with the mother. And what is the mother but the source of creation and novelty, of new things, the source of creation? You must rejoin with the source of creation, the very thing that gave you birth, the very thing that's capable of giving birth to anything else. That's why it's desirable, because there you're going to find the greatest power of creation imaginable, the thing that gave you birth and the cosmos birth. Well, can you think of anything more powerful than that? All right, Neumann says, fear of the dragon corresponds to fear of the female in general. The bisexual structure of the Ouroboric dragon shows that the great mother possesses masculine features. The aggressive and destructive features of the great mother can be distinguished as masculine. This is especially evident in the case of Hecate's attributes. Now, if I'm pronouncing that right, Hecate is an ancient Greek, uh, an ancient Egyptian goddess, and she has certain attributes. If you see images of her, she's holding a whip, a snake, a dagger, and a torch. So, why would those attributes be associated with masculinity? Well, the whip is something you would use for, let's say. Um, let's say driving slaves or whipping animals, uh, beasts of burden. So you have an image of aggression and violence in a whip. How about the snake? Well, the, the snake is sort of a phallic image already. It's sort of, it looks like, sort of like a penis as it is. Then you have the dagger, which is a symbol of war and murder and all sorts of other things. And then the torch. And the torch, of course, is a representative of the sun, right? Light and fire, that by which we see. So the torch is, just like the sun, an image of consciousness. And all of those things are masculine. They're related to consciousness rather than the unconscious. And so you see goddesses like this great, this ancient Greek uh, great goddess, Hecate, who, very much like the original Ouroboros, has got these feminine and masculine qualities together. And this is what Neumann calls the bisexual structure of the Ouroboric dragon. Let me just take a second to talk about that first sentence. Fear of the dragon corresponds to fear of the female in general. So there's a little bit of wishy-washiness between using the word female and feminine. Um, I, I think I prefer the word feminine, especially because you can understand that femininity is something that might be, well, it's going to exist in both men and women, first of all. And you might be estranged from it either way. Now, there's lots of women that aren't in touch with their feminine side. There's a lot of men who are in touch with their feminine side. But you can see them that it would exist in both places and potentially would be accessible to you in both places. So let's, let's use this feminine word instead. Fear of the dragon corresponds to fear of the feminine. Now we already know the feminine in the Ouroboros represents the unconscious. right? So it's fear of the unconscious. It's fear of death fear of the unknown, fear of the other. It's the same reason the ocean represents the unconscious. So if you're swimming in the, in, the, in the dark ocean and you look down and you see nothing, it goes down, who knows how far it goes down? And who knows what might be down there? It's the unknown. All right, Neumann uh, continues. The aggressive and destructive elements in the Great Mother can also appear symbolically as separate figures detached from her in the form of attendants, priests, animals, etc. 
All right, so this is just, if you're trying to understand the mythological stories or the images, you'll see images of gods and goddesses from prehistory or ancient times. What, what, what Neumann is trying to, trying to get across here is that these masculine and feminine features that you see in this dragon motif, this Ouroboros, like we just talked about with the Kate, has both you know, feminine and masculine characteristics that sometimes those characteristics get separated from the goddess or god themselves, and they're still connected with the god or goddess. It might be something they're holding or something that they're always they're always shown with. Um, so as an example, um, we were talking about the goddess Hecate earlier. The Egyptian goddess is always accompanied by dogs. So the dogs might represent... You know, some some masculine feature. Now, then you can look at something like the goddess Freya from the Norse religion, my daughter's namesake. Um, she was always associated with cats. She was accompanied by cats. I, th- I think they pulled her on a chariot, by the way. But you also see this with what's called consorts, where you have one god who's always paired with a goddess, and it's from the mythological stories. It's clear that there really aren't separate. They're not separate things. The god and the goddess are always together. Their stories are always intertwined. And so you have this consort idea where a goddess will have a male partner. So you can think in the Greek tradition about um, Kronos and Rhea or Zeus and Hera, um, you know, uh, and it just goes on and on. Even in the in the, even in the um, Sumerian story, you've got um, Apsu and Tiamat. Those are the two um, figures of the Ouroboros. Uh, Apsu, the great goddess, and, um, or excuse me, Apsu, the great god, and Tiamat, the great goddess. But you can also see them, rather than as being consorts, like a like a husband and wife, or rather than the god or goddess having like animals accompanying them that represent these other, other half of the Ouroboros, sometimes it's the divine son, or what's called the sun lover, and that goes back to this Oedipus idea. This is exactly the Madonna and child idea that we talked about already, the Isis and Horus or the Jesus and Mary. You've got the great goddess represented by, um, you know, or the unconscious represented by the great goddess. But then you have the masculine conscious part represented by her child. It's always a male child. And Neumann says, what distinguishes the hero is an active incest, the deliberate conscious exposure of himself to the dangerous influences of the female. So I would say feminine, but you get it. You get the idea. He's consciously and deliberately exposing himself to the dangers of the unconscious. And the hero must do it deliberately, right? That's to say consciously. Otherwise, he's not being true to himself as a symbol of consciousness. The hero must act voluntarily. And you can see you can see in mythology, for instance, the sacrifice of Jesus in the in the biblical story. It's a voluntary sacrifice. You know, he he could have escaped. He had every opportunity, and some people asked him to, wanted him to escape that fate, but he voluntarily sacrificed himself. And that's that's absolutely critical to the hero story. If Jesus would have been captured and killed, and never had a choice, and never had an opportunity to run away. Well, he didn't act morally, right? He just, he just, something happened to him, right? He was never given an opportunity to choose one, you know, possibility or the other. 
It's important that you have the ability to choose. Otherwise, your sacrifice means nothing. Otherwise, your sacrifice isn't a sacrifice at all. And this voluntary bit Jordan Peterson talks about uh, often when he talks about exposure therapy. So these are people that have phobias. You know, imagine you have a... He he usually talks about a a lady that was a patient that was afraid of elevators, right? She's terrified of elevators. She couldn't even walk past elevators in in a building, in an office building. So certainly couldn't get on them. And what you do, apparently, as a psychologist to help them get over irrational fears is called exposure therapy. You, you make them, you make them look at an elevator for as long as they can manage it. And you make them continue to practice until they're so bored by staring at the elevator that doesn't have any fear for them anymore. Well, then you make them get a little closer and the fear comes back and you wait and you wait and you wait for the fear to go away. And then you get them right up to the elevator and you go through it again. Then you haven't touched the elevator. Then you haven't touched the buttons and you haven't get in. And little by little by little, exposure to the fear will help them to get over the fear. And here's the crux. If you force them to have the exposure, if it's not voluntary, those people don't get over their phobias. It has to be voluntary. It has to be something that they choose to do and if they do, for some reason, psychologically, that's the key. And isn't that funny? How that's connected. You must voluntarily expose yourself to the chaos, to the dragon, to the unconscious, to what you're afraid of. And that's how you become the hero. That's what creates the personality transformation that will make you worthy of the hero. That will make you the equal of the dragon. That brings me to the last section, which is called Divine Son, Son Lover, Oedipus. All right. Neumann says, The androgynous son lover originates where the great mother is still dormant and masculinity not yet firmly established. All right. So this takes some explanation. The son lover is a motif. It's something that appears in mythology. It represents the burgeoning ego consciousness. So you can imagine the picture of uh, Mary holding Jesus or, or Isis holding Horus. You know that this child is, because all newborn children are, delicate and, um, you, and completely dependent on you for protection and for the security and all that. Uh, an infant will die in no time without love and care and all that. So you have a precarious consciousness. The baby is conscious. It's masculine. It's a male baby. It represents consciousness. It's come from the mother. It's come from the unconscious. But it's not standing on its own, right? It's completely dependent on the unconscious, on the mother. So that's that's why he says when you see these images of the sun lover, it's usually an androgynous sun lover. Now that just like any child... You know, they don't have any particularly masculine features. They don't have any particular feminine features. Children up until, you know, really the age of puberty beginning, they look very similar. They look androgynous, and that's the point here. It's not wholeheartedly conscious or unconscious, not wholeheartedly masculine or feminine. It's something in this in-between place, you know? That's why it's burgeoning consciousness. Neumann says, masculinity has not so far achieved any independence at all. So it exists, but it's not independent. Okay, He says, its development has been nipped in the bud. 
the effeminate nature of the adolescent is an intermediate stage, which can also be regarded as an intersexual stage. Okay, so when he's talking about the adolescent here, he's talking about the son lover. And you can see that that is an intermediate stage because consciousness exists. You can see it in the child and the baby, but it's not standing on its own. It's still entirely dependent on its mother. As an image, this is something we see in mythology, but it's also something that's true of our own consciousness. At some point, we're more we're, we're just a part of our mother, and then at some point, we're not. You know, we have our own consciousness. So at some point, we're in this intermediate stage. We haven't succeeded in creating uh, our own standalone consciousness, but we're getting there. So he calls that um, he calls that an intersexual stage, which by that he just means somewhere in between masculine and feminine, or not quite one or the other. He calls it an, an intermediary stage, right? Because the baby that represents consciousness is not fully mature, and what that means is it's not fully manifest. It's not fully existing. It's still in this sort of unfolding potential kind of a, kind of a way. So that's maybe the beginnings of the hero story, but but it really hasn't got off the ground yet. You know that baby hasn't recognized its mother as a dragon. It hasn't fought for its freedom. It hasn't gained a treasure. So we're getting there, but we're not there yet. Neumann says, for the ego and the male. The female is synonymous with the unconscious and the non-ego. Hence with darkness, nothingness, the void, the bottomless pit. Mother, womb, the pit, and hell are all identical. Those are strong words. But we don't have all the connotations of hell here that you might think if you were a Christian. What he's saying here is for the ego, which is the conscious part of us. The feminine, which is the unconscious part of us, is completely our opposite. It's nothing like us. So we see that as the opposite of consciousness. And that's dark, right? Consciousness is very closely associated with sight and and experience and sensation. So without it, the opposite of consciousness is darkness, nothingness, void, right? That's scary. That's why the feminine and the, uh, the feminine side of the Ouroboros is a monster and a dragon, it's, not, it's scary because it's exactly the opposite of what we are as conscious entities. And, it, and it, it, I want to say risks, but that's not the word exactly. It threatens taking away that, that consciousness, absorbing it into this unconsciousness, with which to a conscious agent seems like hell and death in the pit, the void. Neumann says the womb is the place of origin from whence one came. And so every female is, as a womb, the primordial womb of the great mother of all, the womb of the unconscious. She threatens the ego with the danger of self-loss. In psychological terms, this means the ego dissolution in the unconscious. So this is what people are afraid of when they say they're afraid to die. It's what people are afraid of when they're afraid to do let's say psychedelics, because they've had an ego-death experience and it's terrifying. The experience of ceasing to exist. That's what, that's what the unconscious is. Ceasing to exist at least in being, in the way that we think of as existence. And this, you know, 
temporally defined, you know, series of uh, images and sensations and memories that we call existence. That is gone in the unconscious. That's why it's a dragon. That's why it's terrifying. Also, there's this thing here that I think is really interesting where he says, he says, the womb is the place of origin from whence one came. And so every female is a womb, as a womb is the primordial womb of the great mother. So I want to, I want to tell you this. It's, it's hard to conceptualize. There is a mythological idea of whatever the origin of consciousness in the cosmos is, whatever it was that allowed all of this to exist. And we can call that a womb because just like a, 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 a human being's womb, it is the place of origin. And he's saying that every female, which by the way is an embodiment of femininity, is an embodiment of the unconscious. And there's ways in which women exist unconsciously far more than men do. You can think about everything that's to do with gestation and childbirth and menstruation and all these things that are sort of automated processes in the, in the, in the, in the, in the human female that simply don't exist in the man. Motivations and all of these things that are instinctual, you can say, that guide a woman's being. Men don't have that. We have to figure it out ourselves. Our biology doesn't help us to figure out what it is we should do, what it is we should want, what it is we should fear. So there's a way in which women are embodiments of the feminine, at least more so than men. Men are too. And so their wombs are an embodiment of this psych psychic idea, this spiritual idea of this primordial womb, right? Every woman is an embodiment of the same place of origin that gave birth to psyche and cosmos. It's like as a woman, you get to be you get to be the manifestation and the embodiment of a principle that's so deep it goes back to the beginning of time. It's an ontological principle. It's what it's something that makes you godlike. It's amazing. All right, Neumann says the hero's fight is always concerned with the threat to the spiritual, masculine principle from, uh, from the Ouroboric dragon and with the danger of being swallowed by the unconscious. The most widely disseminated archetype of the dragon fight is the sun myth, where the hero is swallowed every evening by the nocturnal sea monster, and who then grapples with the dragon whom he encounters in this uterine cavern. He is then reborn in the east as the victorious sun. Light is the central symbol of the hero's reality. The hero is always a light bringer. At the lowest point of the year, Christ is born as the shining redeemer, as the light of the year and of the world, and is worshipped with a Christmas tree at the winter solstice. The hero's victory brings with it a new spiritual status, a new knowledge, and an alteration of consciousness. All right, so there's a lot there. So he's talking about this solar myth, which you see all over the world, this myth of the sun that we already talked about. And then he, he, he uses some interesting language. He talks about the sun dipping down below the sea, and it's like it's being swallowed by a monster. Well, that's the dragon fight, right? And while it's under the earth, while it's in the underworld, coming back up the other way, right? 
um, we don't know where it is. It's gone and it's dark. The sun is gone. It's been swallowed by the, by the dragon. And, and uh, Neumann calls it the uterine cave, right? U- uterine cavern. And then the sun is reborn in the east, and that's a symbol of its victory over the dragon. It brings back the sun. It brings back the light, right? And that's what consciousness is associated with, light experience. And he says it's at that lowest point of the year, when the sun is furthest away, when it's darkest and coldest. That's when we celebrate the birth of the hero. That's Christmas, man, right? And when we, he says we worship it with a Christmas tree at the winter solstice. That's the shortest day of the year. And what is a Christmas tree but a, an evergreen, right? A symbol of eternal life. And how do we decorate it? With lights, right? The light of consciousness. Isn't that amazing? And of course, that the Christmas tree uh, is, is uh, it, you know, comes from an older um, Yule tradition, which is a very similar, right? Still the evergreen, still the lights, the fire even. Then at the end, he says, the hero's victory brings with it a new spiritual status, right? When the, when the sun defeats the dragon and is born anew, that's a new day, right? A new status, a new beginning. That's what we say about the new year, is it not? And Neumann says a new knowledge and an alteration of consciousness. Well, if you were the hero and you have this transformation of personality, the new thing that's born, the new sun, is actually a new you. The alter, the, um, the uh, change in your consciousness is, well, it's what we talked about earlier. It's the treasure gained from the fight with the dragon. It's transformation. It's a new beginning, but it's also a new you. To be born again, right? Neumann says, Unconscious forces deploy themselves against the ego hero as fearsome monsters and dragons who threaten to swallow him up again. The devouring aspect of the unconscious is therefore the great mother of all the evils which come up from the unconscious and overwhelm the ego with their dynamism. He says, Oedipus is the type of hero whose, whose fight with the dragon is only partially successful. There are three fateful points in the myth of Oedipus. Firstly, the victory over the Sphinx. Secondly, the incest with the mother. Thirdly, the murder of the father. Oedipus vanquishes the Sphinx, the dragon of the abyss. By conquering the Sphinx, Oedipus becomes a hero. And as such, he commits incest with his mother, like every hero. And again, what he means by that, what he means by that is not literal. He means every hero, to become a hero, has to voluntarily face the dangers of the unconscious, the very worst fear and danger imaginable. Neumann says, The hero's incest and the conquering of the Sphinx are identical, two sides of the same process. By entering into the womb, the abyss, the peril of the unconscious, he weds himself triumphantly with the great mother. His heroism transforms him into a fully grown male, independent enough to overcome the power of the female and to reproduce a new being in her. The male unites with his female opposite and brings to birth a new thing, a third. 
a synthesis in which, for the first time, male and female are equilibriated in a whole. All right, so there's a lot going on here, but by entering the womb, by going back into the unconscious, the ego weds itself with the great mother. What is the great mother? The creative generative source from which even even the ego was born. It goes back to his point of origin, to this creative generative power. And by doing so, he becomes a hero. Right? He's a fully mature, he's, it, it, Neumann says male, but fully mature consciousness. That's the masculine piece. Now standing on its own, independent enough to overcome the dragon of chaos and to reproduce a new being in her, which is an interesting way of, way of putting it. But remember, the unconscious is the, is the place everything comes from. It's the origin place. So where else would a new thing come from? It must be reproduced in her. And it's by going into the unconscious that you become something new. It's like you go back into the womb and you come out born again as something new. Reborn, some sort of an improved self, right? You've got, you've got something there from the unconscious that makes you greater, stronger, more. And then he says the male unites with his female opposite and brings to birth a new thing. So you have the power of the masculine consciousness and the power of the feminine unconscious that are brought together in a synthesis. And that's the new thing. You're more than you used to be. And we are, we are like that. We're simultaneously creatures of consciousness and unconsciousness. All right, Neumann says... We can see why Oedipus was only half a hero, and why the real deed of the hero remains only half accomplished. Though Oedipus conquers the Sphinx, he murders his father unconsciously. He has no knowledge of what he has done, and when he finds out, he's unable to look the deed of the hero in the face. He regresses to the stage of the sun and suffers the fate of the sun lover. He performs the act of self-castration by putting out his own eyes. The blinding signifies the destruction of the higher masculinity, of the very thing that characterizes the hero. And this cancels out all that was gained by his victory over the Sphinx. So in the story of Oedipus, when he finds out what, he, what he's done, when he, when he is confronted by the reality of what he's done, he regresses, right? He doesn't choose to stand on his own and to take responsibility voluntarily. Instead, he, he, does the, he goes the heroin route, right? He becomes the sun lover. He, he bows down to the unconscious and sinks back into it. He lets the, the unconscious overtake him and resorb him, you might say. And this is symbolized in the story by him putting out his own eye. Now, Neumann calls that self-castration, now, cutting off your penis and putting out your own eye don't seem like comparable sacrifices, but what he's saying here is that castration simply means removing the masculine part of you, right? Removing the conscious part of you. And that is a lot like putting out your eye, right? What he's done is he's forfeited his own symbol or organ of consciousness, right? The eye, just like Horace and, and Marduk, are seen to be associated very closely to consciousness. So if you put out your eye... You can no longer see, right? Then you're in the dark. Then you're in the unconscious place. So this is how the story, how the story uh, shows it. 
So blinding himself is like destroying that conscious part of himself, allowing himself to be resorbed, you know, by the unconscious. So he doesn't, never succeeds in standing on his own, never succeeds in taking responsibility and voluntarily standing on his own like Jesus did in, in the biblical story, like the hero does in every story. Oedipus is the failed hero. All right, I lied to you about the, that being the last section. There's one more here. It's called Rise and Rise Again. It goes like this. If the hero succeeds in being a hero... He enters into the terrible mother and emerges covered in glory from the belly of the whale or from the uterine cavern of the earth. The slaying of the mother and identification with the father God go together. By hacking his way out of the darkness, he is reborn as the hero in the image of God. But at the same time as the son of the generative good mother. What I want to point out here is, right, the father is the force of consciousness that's there in the Ouroboros. It's the thing it's the thing that the ego itself, that this new consciousness is well, it's just as much a child of, of this primordial consciousness as it is a child of the primordial unconsciousness. And he says by hacking his way out of the darkness, he's reborn as the hero in the image of God. So he becomes he he, be, he takes the role of his own father, which we obviously saw in the Oedipus story. He becomes his own father. He's also the he's also still the son of his of of his mother, so he's his own father and son. And that's what we call a paradox. When we see that, if you remember what I told you about paradox, every time I see this, especially if it's intentional, symbolic, or mythological, any time I see a paradox, I I understand that there's something mystical being communicated. This goes back to the Ouroboros. Obviously, it's very symbolic, but I want to point out here that, that consciousness being its own father and son is a paradox, and it points to something deeply important. All right, almost done here. Neumann says, Midnight decides whether the son will be born again as the hero to shed new light on a world renewed, or whether he will be devoured by the terrible mother who kills him by destroying the heavenly part that makes him a hero. He then remains in the darkness, a captive. Not only does he find himself grown fast to the rocks of the underworld like Theseus, or chained to the crags like Prometheus, or nailed to the cross like Jesus, but the world remains without a hero. Fuck, man, the hair stands up on my arms. The world remains without a hero. So he must be born again. The hero must be born again. And then Neumann tells us, Just as in Indian mythology, Rama, at the behest of his father, beheads his mother with an axe, so in the tragedies of Aeschylus, the spirit of the father is the impelling force that encompasses the death of the sinful mother. Here, identification with the father is so complete that the maternal principle can be killed. Orestes has for his ally the world of light. Apollo and Athena help him obtain justice. And justice in this case means the setting up of a new law opposed to the old matriarchal law. His cause is espoused by the goddess Athena, who herself was not born of woman, but sprang from the head of Zeus. 
This Athena aspect comes to the aid of the hero in his fight with the mother dragon and helps him to overcome his terror of the feminine unconscious. All right, so this is interesting. I talked about this on the last episode we did about Edinger's eternal drama, but Athena is really a symbol of what Jung would call um, the anima. She's the feminine side of a man or the masculine side of a woman, but it's the side of you that you repress or that you push into the unconscious for lots of reasons. For by some biological, some social, some psychological reasons, a man wants to be a man. A woman wants to be a woman. So you want to, be, you want to do manly things. You want to be perceived as a man. You, you want to be, you know, speak and walk and, and act like a man or, or a woman, right? Um, so you repress the other side. A man doesn't want to be seen as feminine, so he suppresses the feminine side. And then what you have is a vast resource in your unconscious, your feminine side that has all of the advantages of a woman. But you pretend like you don't like that thing and don't want it to be a part of yourself, and so you forfeit the value or benefit of having a feminine side. And this is what Athena represents. She's the the female, the goddess, born of a man only, born from Zeus. And she's friendly to man, right? She's something like the intermediary. She's the anima spirit within man, his unconscious feminine side. It is of the unconscious, right? Because it's feminine. And so bestows to consciousness the understanding necessary to conquer it. And so hidden within the unconscious, even within yourself, is a great treasure. The anima, right? If you're, if you're a masculine character. The animus, if you're a feminine character. But nonetheless there. The treasure. That brings me to my conclusion. Was that what you were expecting? Had you written Oedipus off as some kind of ill-fated, depraved pervert? It's hard to even justify thinking about. It's the kind of story you hear and immediately push down into the unconscious so that you never have to think about it again. But not so fast. Oedipus's mother is not his actual mother, now is she? And Oedipus's great sin of incest isn't a sexual act at all. Upon deeper reading, we see the philosophical, spiritual symbolism, which tells quite another story. Oedipus's mother is a symbolic mother, just as Oedipus is a symbolic hero. The great mother is the origin point of all things. It is the mother of all, you and I and Oedipus included. And returning to our place of origin is a symbolic act of incest. But as Neumann says, this is inherently desirable. We must return to our place of origin so that we can come to understand exactly what our origin is. When we do so, we come to know ourselves as the sons and daughters of a great mystery, of the divine Ouroboros. We are therefore demigods ourselves, in a manner of speaking. We are heroes with a great destiny. And by bravely and voluntarily risking all, we venture back into the unconscious and find there the treasure that is our birthright. We find the power of the Ouroboros itself, the power to create. 
Just as the Ouroboros created Psyche and Cosmos in the beginning, we too find the power of creation within ourselves. Neumann relates re-entry into the unconscious to the mystery religions of the ancient world, which required initiates to enter into the underworld and to make it out again on the other side. This was like a, um, a ritual, you know? The power to overcome this encounter with the unconscious, Neumann notes, culminates in a deification, an identification with the sun god. So that's something... In Greek, it's, it's called an apotheosis, right? The mystery religion initiates would go and do this ritual where they had to symbolically go into the underworld. That ritual, by the way, may have included the use of psychedelic substances. In any case, they had to make it out the other side. And in doing so, they become, and maybe the only way to get to the other side is to become God itself, and this too reveals the power of creation in the hands of the hero. He is deified. He is God itself, as I said. Neumann tells us his heroism transform him, transforms him, independent enough to overcome the power of the female and to reproduce a being, a new being in her. And so we see consciousness harnessing the creative power of the unconscious to transform itself into something more, something higher, something entirely new. We see the power of transformation, which allows what you are to become what you might be, or what might become necessary for you to be. We adapt psychologically and physically. We mature, master new skills, form new ways of thinking, we transform our bodies through exercise and even change the very wiring of our brains with sufficient discipline. We conceal this power within, concealing it even from ourselves. But once unlocked, we surely become heroes. If only we're willing to sacrifice, to do the work, to face all uncertainty and danger head-on. In a word, to be heroic. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.